Lesson 7 on our study of the 12 marks of a healthy church. We are considering mark number 4 in Dever's book, Nine Marks. And this is a biblical understanding of church membership. Really a great chapter, I thought. I hope you were able to read it. I think it was very encouraging. I'll overview it for you. If you haven't read it yet, I hope you'll read it in the coming week. Let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would continue to increase our understanding of the church of Jesus Christ. I thank you for your word which reveals what the church is and what she is to do to us so clearly. The challenge for us, O Lord, is to be faithful in these things. And so I pray that you would give us clarity of mind so that we would know what you have called us to do. I pray that you would also give us courage to do these things, O Lord, in a day and age where they are not often done. And Lord, I pray that you would give us love, for without love we are nothing. So help us, O God, to be a healthy church, one that brings honor to you, one where the people of God are built up in Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. In the introduction to this chapter, Dever um, addresses the fact that church membership is not uh, popular in our day and age. Uh, Formal church membership is not popular. People are off-put by the idea of being asked to uh, formally join themselves to a congregation. There is kind of this idea out there that uh, the Christian life is really about my personal relationship with Jesus. So if I have professed faith in Christ and if I have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then I am a member of Christ's church. Uh, But what are they thinking about? The church local or the church universal? I think in these instances they, they tend to think about the church universal. So there is some truth to that, to profess faith in Christ and to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is to be joined to the, to the universal church. But in the New Testament, we see a heavy emphasis upon uh, not the universal church, the invisible church, but upon the local church, the visible church, like this one here. Uh, this book that we have new members go through, prospective members go through, um, Jesus loves the church and so should you. Um, there's a wonderful little statement in there uh, where a case for formal church membership is laid out. And it is this, the New Testament is a church book. Um, in, in other words, when you pick up the New Testament and read, you see that the local church is everywhere. It's just everywhere. There are texts that teach about the local church directly But also if you think of, let's say, the the epistles, these are letters written by apostles to local congregations. So even if the subject of the local church isn't being directly taught or expressed, uh, the fact that you are reading Paul's letter to the Romans or Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, even that fact alone should help us to see that the local church is is really crucial and central to the Christian faith. Um, So this idea that we are baptized into Christ and therefore baptized into the church universal and that there's no need to formally join a local congregation is to miss the clear teaching of the Scriptures, the clear teaching of the New Testament. But here Dever does lay out a few reasons why uh, perhaps in our culture people are especially hesitant to join themselves to a local church formally. He talks about commitment phobia, 
as being um, a problem in our day and age. People just in general don't like to make commitments, it seems. And so to make this kind of commitment is off-putting uh, to, to some. To be asked to make this kind of commitment is off-putting. Uh, he also talks about Lone Rangerism. He's making up words here for us, but I think they're helpful uh, words. And uh, this ties into what I was just saying. A lot of Christians think that the Christian life is really about your individual walk with Christ, and they neglect the corporate. But there is so much in the Scriptures about the corporate, isn't there? Um, the, the church is the flock of God. The church is the body of Christ, and we are all individual members of it. The church is the temple, constructed of individual stones, but we're built up together into a holy place where God is worshipped. Uh, the church is described in the terms of family, and on and on we can go. Everything that the New Testament says about the local church should help us to see that the Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation from one another, but in community um, and in the church. Um, Dever, in, on page 122, raises a hypothetical objection. Isn't the whole idea of church membership counterproductive? Isn't it unfriendly and maybe even elitist to say that we're in and you're out? Uh, well, counterproductive. What do you mean by that? What does it mean to be productive? That's the thing we have to talk about, don't we? And if your idea of uh, being productive is that we grow our churches as large as we can, numerically speaking, as quickly as we can, then yes, formal church membership is counterproductive. It will not help reach that goal. But if our aim is faithfulness to the Scriptures, if our aim is not only to build uh, large churches numerically, but healthy churches and spiritually mature churches, churches that are obedient to God's Word, then certainly this is not counterproductive. Concerning the question, isn't it unfriendly? Well, maybe it could be. And we should not allow ourselves to fall into that uh, trap of being unfriendly. We can have formal church membership. We can take membership seriously. We can take things like church discipline seriously and still be very friendly and welcoming uh, to visitors and even to non-believers. A church that is properly formed should be able to welcome visitors and even non-believers into their midst. Uh, and they can be warmly welcomed in this place, certainly. But nevertheless, there are these categories that remain, these biblical categories. And in fact, having these categories should help us with this, to make proper distinctions and to, and to treat people with love and respect, no matter where it is that they stand. Uh, elitist, I think not. Um, some, when they hear the word membership, though, they do think of, uh, you know... Membership as it exists in the world. You know, I'm a member of such and such a club, uh, and such and such a, a, a club, and this is an elite club, an elite society, and only those with lots of money can be a part of it. Only those with political power can be a part of it. Only those with special knowledge can be a part of this elite club. But that's not what we're talking about here. Um, we're not talking about being a part of an elite club. We're talking about clearly defining the church as being a, a body of believers. So we have to be very careful as, in terms of what the standards for membership are. We must set the standards just right. The standards must be biblical. So what is required to join yourself to a church, a, a credible profession of faith? Um, baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, living in a way that agrees with the Christian faith, which is not perfection for any of us, is it? Um, 
So these are the biblical requirements. Also, there should be some process that is established, and we'll come to that in just a moment, whereby new members are able to be brought into the church formally in a healthy way, where the doctrines of the church are taught and the process of discipleship begins. But we have to be very careful that we do not impose unbiblical standards for membership upon people and go beyond what the Scriptures say. So elitist, I I think not. Uh, We have to guard against this attitude, of course, and make sure that it never creeps in among us. Uh, saying that we're in and you're out again. Um, We have to be careful to draw the line in the proper place and to have proper standards for membership and to not go beyond what the Scriptures say. Is it required that only mature Christians be received into the church as members? No. Brand new Christians need to be received into the church. Is it required that you obtain um, mastery of Christian doctrine before you be received into the church? No. Uh, We're to preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, baptize those who profess faith in Christ, who make a credible profession, and then teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. There's an order here, and we cannot get the order uh, mixed up. Uh, In fact, our Constitution uses, I think, that language of mastery of Christian doctrine. I think it is that phrase, and it clarifies that this is not required for being accepted into the local church, but rather uh, these other things that I have already mentioned. Um, Here Dever says in the introduction, I'm convinced that getting this concept of membership right is a key step in revitalizing our churches, evangelizing our nation, furthering the cause of Christ around the world, and so bringing glory to God. And when I read that I said, Amen. I fully agree with Dever's assessment here. Can I address something with you real quick? Am I really asking your permission? Probably not, but... um, Sometimes I think that maybe people outside of Emmaus, maybe even some within Emmaus, look at what we're doing here and the utter simplicity of it. And they might be tempted to think this, we really need to be doing more. We really need to be doing more to revitalize the church, to evangelize our nation, to have an impact upon society. We, We need to be more creative, you know, we need to have more activity in the community and programs, etc. Do you, you understand the potential criticism that people might have concerning churches like ours that are quite simple um, and unimpressive in the world's eyes in these regard? I, I, I do want to say to you, as the, as the members of Emmaus especially, quite the opposite. I think this is the way to have an impact upon uh, our society, upon our culture. This is the way to revitalize the church and to be actually productive in evangelism. It's to build healthy churches like this. Simple things, yes, but to aim at health and to be sure that we do things in a biblical manner. And this is what will have a lasting impact. It might not be a quick and obvious impact, but it will have a lasting impact in the long run as we raise up the next generation in this congregation, and so on and so forth. Um, in fact, how many non-believers have you heard complain that the church is filled with hypocrites? You've heard that critique before. And I used to dismiss that more so. Um, yeah, it's probably just some disgruntled person, you know, who just wants to throw stones at the church. Uh, more and more, I, I, I'm saying, yeah, they're probably right. A lot of churches are filled with hypocrites. And it's sad. It really is sad. It, 
it, it, it brings shame to the name of Christ and to His church. And so we need to pursue authenticity and health and maturity in our congregations. And it's unimpressive at first, according to the world. But I think in the long run, this is how we will have an impact upon the world around us, by being faithful to do what Christ has called us to do. So what is a church? Uh, you've been hearing a lot about this here at Emmaus in a sermon series where we talked about the church as temple um, and through other teachings as well. We've been focusing on the church an awful lot. And so you know these things. What is a church? Well, it is not a building. By the way, if you say, hey, I'm going to go down. If I say to my wife, hey, I'm going to run down to the church, speaking of the facility, I don't think any rebuke is in order, right? Uh, But the church is not a building. You understand that. This is the meeting place of the church, and I really like that language. This is the, the meeting house of the church, which we call Emmaus Reformed Baptist Church. So it is not a building. It is not a worship service. Hey, are you, are you going to church this morning? Someone might ask. Um, and what do they mean? Are, are, are you going to attend public worship? Again, it's fine that we speak in this way, but church is not a service. And you know that a lot of professing Christians do think in this way today, don't they? They think of the church as a building. I think even worse yet, they think of a church as a a service, a kind of production that they go to, that they that they participate in, and then they leave. But they're they're not thinking of the church as a body to which they belong, to which they are committed, where there is actual responsibilities and expectations and accountability. You, you understand the difference. Uh, so people attend church, and by that they mean they attend the worship services that that. Um, that are put on in a given place. But biblically, a church is different. It is a local, I think it's a good definition, a local, living, and loving collection of people who are committed to Christ and to each other. You could tell Deborah is a Baptist. Local, living, and loving. Uh, three L's. He's a Baptist preacher, right? But you can remember that. Uh, There is a universal church, of course, but the New Testament scriptures speak most often of the local church, a church that assembles in a particular place every Lord's Day. Uh, Living, uh, we share life together. We've been made alive by the Holy Spirit. It's it's people interacting with people. Uh, A bit of a side note, but I guess it needs to be said more and more these days. You cannot do church online. You cannot do church online. Um, some will argue for this. A lot of people will argue for this. Well, we meet on the internet, you know. Yes, but it's not life to life. It is not face to face. It is not person to person. And no technology can ever replace that. Uh, the church is a local, living, and loving collection of people who are committed to Christ and to each other. And here I am stressing the word love. It is so very important that we love one another in the church. In the opening prayer, I did ask that the Lord would enable us to love one another, for without love uh, we are nothing, Paul says. I want to come back to that in just a moment. I think I'm going to read point B before I do. Um, So let me just finish the thought with point A. Uh, A church... Being a part of a church involves commitment, a commitment to Christ. So there is that relational 
component there, the relationship with Christ that is primary, uh, but also there is a commitment to each other, officers to members, members to officers, and then all members to one another. It involves commitment uh, to one another. According to the Bible, point B, it is a body from which you can be excluded and in which, therefore, you can clearly be included. And then Dever makes this remark that I think is very helpful. Consider this, if there is no way for you to be excluded from the local church you are currently attending, perhaps that is because you have not included, have not been included in it as much as, as the Bible intends. So that's a very good way of putting it. You know, to, to those who are reading Dever's book, I think what he's asking his readers to do is to ask the question, is there any way for me to be excluded from this church that I'm currently attending? I wonder how most Christians would answer that question. Is there any way for me to be excluded from this church I'm currently attending? I would imagine that a lot of professing Christians would say, no, there really is no way for that to happen. In fact, the pastor doesn't know my name. Uh, Very few people notice when I'm not here. I come and go as I please. I've never seen anyone excluded from this congregation or that idea even being considered in any meaningful way. And what Dever is saying, well, perhaps there's a problem then. Perhaps you have not been included in this body in the way that the Bible describes. What is he referring to here when he talks about being excluded from the congregation? Well, the most famous passage that speaks to this, and we will come to the issue of church discipline in a later lesson, is Matthew 18, where when sin goes on and it is unrepented of, uh, it's been confronted once by an individual, and then others have been brought to confront the sin when there's a personal offense. And then the end of this process, it says, tell it to the church, and if there's no repentance still, the, the, the unrepentant one is to be put out of the church, is, is to be considered as a tax collector and sinner. There's other very important passages that speak to the issue of church discipline that we also need to consider. Um, for example, in Titus, it says, As for the one who causes division, uh, after warning him once and twice, have nothing more to do with him. Uh, there's other texts that speak of not eating with such a one, you know, the person who lives in sin. This isn't talking about sharing a common meal with them, but eating at the, the, the Lord's table. So all of these texts, they're dealing with the issue of church discipline and the different circumstances that require discipline. But the end result is, if there is no repentance, if there's unrepentant sin, or if there's heresy that's not turned from uh, then there's to be exclusion. Endeavor here is pressing Christians to ask the question, if there is, no, is there a way for you to be excluded from this church you attend? And if the answer is no, then maybe the church is deficient in terms of, uh, on the issue of inclusion. Maybe they're not properly bringing members into the church from the start. Um, yes, I did want to make a bit of a point here, a side note. Uh, I was searching around for resources having to do with nine marks. I don't know how I stumbled upon this, but I stumbled upon excuse me, some critiques of nine marks churches. And it was really interesting because um, the man who was critiquing nine marks uh, was familiar to me. He, uh, he has a blog, and I had encountered his blog while dealing with past controversies. I think he likes to throw stones and to sling mud. It seems to be a hobby of his. So I don't really take his opinions all all that seriously. Um, But nevertheless, the the critique was this, that nine marks churches, or churches like them, 
can be places where uh, pastors abuse members spiritually because in these churches, members are asked to enter into covenants with one another and to commit to remain within the church even through times of difficulty. That was his critique. And so it's possible for there to be uh, spiritual abuse that takes place in churches like this because of this, this idea that members commit to one another in this way. They commit to remain in the church even through times of difficulty. So, so when, when difficulty arises, then people can end up wounded through that process. And I just, I think I laughed out loud in that moment going, yes, spiritual abuse is a problem. It is a problem. Hear me clearly on this, brothers and sisters. Pastors can be abusive towards their members. They can misuse church discipline. And that is a reality that we need to be very careful to guard against. But the problem is not that we have covenanted together. What is the problem in a case like this? We might say generically, the problem is sin. It is not that we're doing church biblically. The problem is sin. Uh, The problem is a lack of love, uh, maybe amongst the members of the church. Uh, You know, people get wounded in the church because the members aren't loving one another as they should, or pastors aren't loving the members, or, and do consider this, the members aren't loving the pastors in the way that they should either. Just as there can be a problem with pastor abuse, there could be a problem with member abuse as well. I want you guys to consider that. I've heard pastors really push back on this subject, by the way. We talk about pastor abuse and the danger of it, but we need to talk also about member abuse uh, towards pastors. But again, the problem is not that we have committed to one another in a meaningful way in a congregation. The problem is sin. The problem is a lack of love for one another. I would also want to emphasize this. Uh, One solution to this is to have a, a proper and biblical form of church government in place. I think it's not the, the covenant that's the problem, the commitment that's the problem. It's that in some of these churches, elders have unchecked authority and no accountability. So if we have a biblical form of government within the local church, it will help to guard against this. So if the members of the church are required to consider certain matters and to vote on certain matters so that the decisions aren't made by one man or only a few men, that will help to guard against this problem of spiritual abuse. Are you following me? So the problem is not the commitment, the covenant. The problem is sin, a lack of love. The problem in a lot of these churches, frankly, is this. The pastor or the pastors have no checks and balances in place. They have no no accountability within the church. And then a third thing that I really uh, look forward to getting to with, with you, and it's the third bonus mark that we will talk about in, in many of these churches, um, there is no outside accountability structure. And so I'm going to talk to you about the importance of associationalism as well. Uh, can you see how a pastor could grow abusive within a, a local church where there is no connection with other churches? There is no real outside accountability. There's no place for the members of the church to appeal to in situations where uh, something like church discipline is being handled improperly and where there is, quote-unquote, spiritual abuse taking place. Do you understand this? And so, 
yes, no doubt, there is this problem that needs to be guarded against. But I'm wanting to say, the trouble is not that we have come together and made strong commitments to one another. Uh, to join ourselves together to walk in our shared union with Christ Jesus. The trouble is not that we take those commitments seriously or that the members are told to not run away from problems, but to stay put and to wait upon the proceedings of the church. There's other factors that are contributing to this that we need to be aware of. A lack of love, uh, a, a, a deficient form of church government within the local church, and then a deficient form of... Um, a, a deficient ecclesiology so that these churches are radically independent. Uh, we are independently governed as a local church, but we are not independent, strictly speaking. We belong to an association of churches so that if there was trouble here, you would have the ability as a member of this church to appeal to other congregations for help, to say, help, our pastor has gone off the rails. Would you, would you come alongside and, and help us to, to resolve this problem? Do it, does this make sense? So I wanted to address that here uh, when uh, Dever is uh, making emphasis upon the need for love within a local congregation and the need for being included in such a way that exclusion is even possible. Side note Dever makes himself is that um, he wants us to make the connection between the idea of the church being a covenanted community of believers and the concept of religious liberty as we know it. Uh, in our nation, um, uh, we are a covenanted community of believers. Why are you members of this church? Were you born into it? No. Does it have anything to do with your citizenship? No. You, you are a member of this church by choice. You're a member of this church by new birth. You're a member of this church by public profession of faith. This is common to you, but you need to remember that for a very long period of time in the history of the church, uh, the idea of being a citizen in a particular land and being joined to a particular church were very tightly tied together. You know, so if you were born into a particular land and baptized as an infant, in, you know, uh, it, it had a lot to do with both your membership in a particular church and your citizenship. And... What Dever wants us to note is that this is a very important part of our Baptist history. This idea of the church being a covenanted community of believers. Uh, you know, you join this community willingly and upon profession of faith. And um, this whole idea of religious liberty. I will say that Jim Renahan threw an idea out to me on, must have been Friday, that we record a, an episode um, focusing on a, a famous. Reform, a famous Baptist named Isaac Bacchus and his whole notion of um, the separation of church and state. There's this resurgence, and given all the political upheaval, it's understandable why people are interested in this, but there's this, uh, there's this, uh, uh, this desire on the part of some to, um, to establish a, a national church, a, a nas Christian nationalism. You understand what I'm saying? And Jim uh, was wanting to record on that subject and to address it, and I'm, I'm certain we will. Uh, I think it'll be a very helpful uh, topic to touch upon, given what's going on in our day and age. Okay, so what is a church? A very important um, question to answer, and Dever has done a good job at helping us to see that it's not a building, not a service, but a loving collection of people who are committed to Christ and to each other committed to one another in very meaningful ways. Why join in a church? I'll move rather quickly through this section. 
Um, I, I think these concepts are familiar to you. Uh, to, to assure ourselves, Deborah says, to assure ourselves. And here's, he, he is talking about assurance of salvation. Are you saved by attending church? Answer, no. Uh, you are not saved because you attend church. But what do saved people do? They, they, they go to church they, and they join themselves to churches. Um, you know, this idea has been put in very black and white terms throughout the history of the church. One cannot have God as father unless he has church as mother. Have you ever heard that phrase before? That makes people uncomfortable because you might think of Roman Catholicism where it's taught that really salvation is distributed by the church so that you cannot be saved apart from her. It's a distortion of this important truth. But there is truth to that statement one cannot have God as father unless uh, he has church as mother. There is some truth to that, if you think of it. How are people born again? It's by the working of the Holy Spirit as the gospel is preached. But who preaches the gospel except the church? So, in a sense, it is the church that is used by God to give birth to new believers. And where are these new believers nursed? <laughs> by the church. Do you understand? And so salvation is not distributed by the church in the way that perhaps Rome would teach. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the church is very much used by God in bringing salvation and growth to, to God's people. This is the way that God has determined to bring His people to Christ through the preaching of the gospel, which is done by Christians who live in local communities, churches, and to bring them to maturity within the church. So to assure ourselves, uh, yes, th th this is evidence that we are indeed children of God when we assemble together with the family of God and worship in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. To evangelize the world, I think here Deborah has this idea in mind. How will the world know that we know Christ? By our love for one another, right? The church will look in upon, the world will look in upon the church and see our love for one another and know that we uh, know the Lord. There's a lot of one another passages in the New Testament that we need to pay attention to. We're called by God to do lots of things towards one another uh, within the context of the church. So the church collectively is to be a witness to the world. We're to be a light to the world. Um, we're to be salt in the world. And so the church, in a sense, evangelizes the world constantly just by her existence. To expose false gospels, uh, the church has a way of collectively protecting the believer against uh, error, theologically speaking. To edify the church, uh, you, you know that the scriptures have a lot to say about this, how all Christians are given, get, given gifts by God, Unique gifts by God, spiritual gifts. And where are those gifts to be used? By you alone? <laughs> by you in your home only? Where are those spiritual gifts to be used? They're to be used within the context of the church for the building up or for the edification of the body of Christ. Some of these gifts have to do with speaking. Um, the gift of preaching and teaching, for example. Some of these gifts have to do more so with serving, the use of our hands, and meeting practical needs um, within the, the body of Christ. Uh, but all have spiritual gifts and all need to use them. I, I'll take the opportunity right now to maybe address some of our young people who are emerging into adulthood and to encourage you uh, to be involved in this way, to use the gifts that God has given to you uh, to, to serve within the church. Um, some of these gifts are to be used 
in a very particular way where you have to volunteer to do some task. There's a place for that. But oftentimes we're just to use our gifts in a very natural and spontaneous way as we encourage one another. Um, the idea is this. When you come to church, oh, so there I am using that uh, When you come to this building, (laughs) when you come to attend this service, better yet, when you come to assemble together with God's people in loving community with one another, do not come with this attitude, I wonder what I will get out of it, but also come with this attitude, I wonder what I can give. I wonder how I can be used by the Lord to bless others and to build others up within uh, the body of Christ. So to edify the church... That is one reason to join so that you can build the church up as God uses you in this way. And to glorify God. We glorify God as we join ourselves to churches formally and assemble together regularly, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, to worship in the way that God has prescribed. I want to read a bit of a section here concerning the responsibilities and duties of members of a Christian church. Dever says they are simply the responsibilities and duties of Christians. I think there is a problem in modern evangelicalism where Christians, when they think of their church, they look at the pastor and they say, that man has a job to do. He has responsibilities. He must minister to me and to us. But what is often neglected is the fact that the New Testament also presents responsibilities for, for the members themselves. Members have responsibilities within the church. They have a particular uh, calling. And so I wanted to just read a section here on page 125. The responsibilities and duties of members of a Christian church are simply the responsibilities and duties of Christians. Church members, like Christians, are to be baptized and to regularly attend the Lord's table. Um, that is your responsibility to be baptized, to pursue baptism, and to regularly attend the Lord's table after baptism. Should the pastor pursue you if you're absent? Yeah, but you should also just come <laughs> and not have to be pursued. Uh, you should follow through on your commitment to Christ and live in obedience to Him. You have this responsibility to be here. Uh, We are to hear God's word and obey it. We are to regularly fellowship together for mutual edification. We are to love God and one another and those outside our fellowship. And we are to evidence the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22-23. We are to worship God in all the activities of our homework, community, and life. Christians also have particular duties in relation to the congregation. He quotes Millard Erickson here. Christianity is a corporate matter, and the Christian life can be fully realized only in relation to others. The most fundamental duty Christians have in relation to the congregation is the duty to regularly attend gatherings of the congregation. Uh, Again, sometimes I'm astonished at how many Christians miss this fact. You've heard pastors say, you need to be at church. You need to be at church. Why, why do they say that? It's because this is what the Scriptures command. This is where the life of the church does happen. When we assemble together and we hear the Word of God read and preached, when we sing, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's as if Christians today are, are, are prone to neglect the essential things, the, 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 the things that the Scriptures so clearly command, and then look for extraordinary things. Well, I, I just don't get much out of assembling together with God's people on the Lord's Day to hear the Word of God read and preached. 
I need counseling. There's a place for counseling. But it's not the main thing. Do you understand what I'm getting at here? I need, I need to go on a retreat. I need to have personal meetings with the pastor. No, you need to get to church and partake of the ordinary means of grace that God has given to us. You need to engage with them thoughtfully, mindfully, faithfully, with love in your, hearts, in your heart for the, for the brethren. This is what you need to do. And I would venture to guess that most of what you need will be met by that. And un, under some circumstances, you will need more pastoral care. You'll, you'll need to meet with others. And that is all well and good. But I, what I am saying to you is that all of that stuff is secondary to the ordinary means of grace. And so there is a reason why pastors will say, where have you been? Why have you not been in the fellowship? This is the main thing, to assemble together on the Lord's Day for worship, to partake of what we call the ordinary means of grace, the reading and preaching of the Holy Scriptures, prayer, the, partic- the participation in the Lord's Supper. These are the things that God has determined to use to feed His people primarily. They are the meat and potatoes of the Christian life, you know. Uh, this is the food that, that you need. In general, membership duties can be divided into duties towards other members and duties towards pastors. So both things need to be considered. What are our duties towards one another? And then what are the duties of members towards pastors? There's a wonderful section here on this. There's a nice footnote. There's a little diagram. Uh, let me read on uh, very quickly. The duties and responsibilities church members have towards one another summarize the life of the new society that is the church. We are to love one another. We're to seek peace and unity. We're to make great effort to maintain unity within the church. We're to watch over one another, edify one another, bear with one another, pray for one another, uh, keep away from those who would destroy the church, reject evaluating people by worldly standards, contend together for the gospel, be examples to one another. He has lots of scripture texts here cited. But then Dever does also say that church members also have particular responsibilities towards the leaders of the church even as the leaders do to them. And here he has a wonderful section on page 128 about all of that. Leaders are to be honored in the Lord. Uh, Paul says they're to be doubly honored. I think doubly there refers to the respect that is to be shown to ministers. That's one kind of honor, but also in context it's referring to material support or financial support. The one who labors in preaching and teaching is to be shown double honor, Meaning, not only is he to have the respect of the congregation that is owed to all elders, uh, but if he gives himself fully to the ministry of the Word of God, he's to be honored in another way too. Namely, he's to be supplied uh, his need so that he need not be hindered by secular employment. Um, What soldier goes to war at his own expense, the scriptures say, and we're not to muzzle an ox as it treads out the grain. These are some of the images that the Scriptures put before us to prove this point. Okay, so there's a good section here on the responsibility that members owe to their pastors or elders and deacons. And and we need to pay attention to these as well, uh, brothers and sisters. Okay, so responsibilities of members are laid before you here and they need to be noted. What does church membership entail? Um, What does church membership entail? Dever says two main things in this section. First of all, baptism. We say Jesus is Lord in the waters of baptism. It is those who credibly profess faith in Christ who are to be baptized. Uh, This 
Baptism does also ordinarily mark entrance into a particular covenant community. I say ordinarily because you can find exceptions to the rule, such as the Ethiopian eunuch who had traveled to Jerusalem as a God-fearer. The gospel was preached to him. He said, look, there's water over there. What's preventing me from being baptized? And he was baptized away from his homeland. But it is to be assumed that he went home and either founded a church or joined one that was being founded. Maybe there were others who believed from that land. Uh, So that's an unusual uh, example. But ordinarily, um, it is baptism that marks entrance into uh, the, the covenant community. And then he says, in writing, by signing a statement of faith in church covenant. This is the way that they do it at their church in Washington, D.C. And, and it is our custom as well. We have, uh, we have new members, prospective members, write a, a testimony. It's shared with the congregation. We have uh, a statement of faith that is made, therefore, to all of the existing members of the body of Christ. We have a church covenant that we use. And... I think this is a very important part of receiving new members into the congregation so that it is clear to all what the expectations are. Uh, Again, we live in a very confused age. Uh, It it seems that lots of Christians have differing opinions as to what membership is or if it should even exist. And so it's all the more important for us to carefully bring new members into the church so that they are taught these things ahead of time so that they're responsibilities are clearly communicated to them as they join, and our responsibilities to them are also uh, made clear. I wanted to, uh, by way of conclusion, just read our church covenant to you, which you have heard over and over again, but it's very important for it to be reviewed from time to time. Here is the covenant that new members make to the existing members, and we to them, here at Emmaus Reformed Baptist Church. Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give ourselves to Him, and having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, and so there is this wonderful statement in the beginning that is professing faith. We have faith in Christ. By God's grace He has drawn us, and we have been baptized upon this profession, and we do now... Uh, relying on His gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully establish our covenant with each other. So we are a covenanting congregation. We enter into covenants with one another or agreements or commitments. Notice it's a solemn covenant. It's also a joyful covenant. We will, and here are the commitments, we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Brothers and sisters, maintaining unity within a church requires work, It requires prayer. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. Uh, Notice the one another language here. And notice the diversity of things that are described. Um, There's brotherly love. Love is essential. Without love we are nothing. But... What is described here is affectionate care, watchfulness, even admonishment and entreatment as occasion may require. So whatever the circumstance may be, we will love one another and we will give one another what is needed in the moment given the circumstances. Sometimes encouragement is needed, sometimes rebuke is needed, but all is to be done in love. 
We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. So, new members commit to be in regular attendance when the church assembles for worship. New members commit to pray uh, for others within the congregation. We will endeavor to bring up such as may at any time be under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. So, in most circumstances, it is our children who are under our care, and we will seek to bring them up in the Lord, but in other circumstances, others might be under our care. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear one another's burdens and sorrows. I heard it stated neatly uh, recently, but in the church, um, the, the sorrows of life are, are shared, and therefore the heavy burden of them is, is alleviated somewhat by the sharing of these burdens. But so too are the joys of life, and so the joys of life are amplified within the church, as we share joys with one another. We rejoice with one another and we also share burdens. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world. So this has to do with our holy living individually, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, remembering that we, that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. It does not say it explicitly, but their baptism by immersion, I think, is taught, isn't it? We're to remember our baptism, death to the old self, new life. We're going to pursue holiness as the commitment. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church. We'll preach the gospel to others. As we sustain its worship ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, we sustain these things by giving our tithes and offerings to the Lord. We sustain these things by our participation in them. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We will, if we move from this place, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. Finally, if we fall into a pattern of unrepentant sin, we invite the loving correction of our church family to call us back to Jesus Christ for the good of our eternal inheritance. In other words, we expect the church to be faithful to do discipline according to the Scriptures, with wisdom and with love. And then we say, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. A very good um, overview and uh, on the subject of church membership. Um, a case is here made for the importance of church membership. I do the same thing in one of the lessons that I teach in the new membership class. I make a case for formal church membership uh, to all who join themselves to Emmaus because it's a case that needs to be made in our day and age. I'm over time. I'll close in prayer right now. Father in heaven, help us in this. Uh, it is one thing for us to be intellectually uh, convinced that this is the right thing to do. And it is indeed important that we are convinced in the mind that this is what the scriptures teach. It is another thing to do it uh, faithfully year after year, decade after decade, with love in our hearts for You, O God, and for one another. So help us in this. Help us to be faithful to do what we believe is right. We pray Your blessing upon the church, today and in the generations to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.